Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. People are interesting. Everyone has a story to tell, whether they've written the book or not. They've still got a story to tell. And that is the thing that draws me out. um, And it draws me away. And it takes me into the thing I love, which is journalism. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 50 with Sophie Roberts. This episode is split into two parts, with the second half going live as episode 51. The conversation with Sophie was a little bit longer than our usual features, but we didn't want to edit and distill this chat down, so we split it up instead. Um, 50 episodes feels like a bit of a milestone, so it's fitting that this conversation features such an incredible, articulate woman with a stunning perspective on the world. Sophie is a writer. She's followed stories around the world for over 20 years. And in this episode, we chat about Sophie's upbringing, her chasing fish around the UK with her parents, her move to the big city and working in the travel industry, as well as her eventual escape from that life. And her move to full-time freelance writing and journalism. This half of Sophie's story sets us up nicely for what it is that follows, which is the tale of her writing her debut book as she spends three years travelling thousands of miles on a journey to find the lost pianos of Siberia. So my name is Sophie Roberts, and I'm a journalist and an author. And I, you're talking to me here down in West Dorset, which is my home. Uh, I got kids, two kids, a lot of animals, and I live down the end of a very long, ragged lane, um, which is my version of peace and solitude. Um, it is a beautiful part of the country which when we first encountered it my husband and I 15 years ago um, I came to see this house and he was really keen on it it was a broken old farmhouse he was really keen on it and he said please come and look at it and I said I'll only look at it at night and he said why do you want to see it at night doesn't make any sense. And I said, I want to see it at night to check I can't see anybody else's lights. Um, because that was my childhood. I was brought up on the west coast of Scotland. And to me, that is peace and solitude. It's not seeing other lights. That's incredible. <laughs> well, that kicks us off well. I mean, my first question, first proper question was going to be, a, 
you know, slightly harder one, but I guess it's easy now. Just before we sat down, you were on a call and you were joking around saying that you're a posh city girl. <laughs> Is that true? Uh, no, I was brought up on a farm in the west coast of Scotland. But when you talk with my accent, uh, you sound like a posh city girl. So I was playing to the stereotype. <laughs> no, I was I was brought up um, making my own fun with two sisters Um uh, initially my parents were in Argyll and then Dumfries and Galloway and you know our, my mother's a painter uh, my father was a journalist and then went into um, fish farming and so we had a really rural childhood um, no TV till we were like must be about 13 14 and we always just had to make our own we had to make our own fun and that was, in retrospect, it was a very powerful space to, to, to grow up in within. Um, but at the time, of course, it was really frustrating because you wanted to be part of the the currency of being a teenager. And so, interestingly, my sister ran for the city really quick, um, and also ran for the most extreme version of modernity. She went into the fashion industry fast. Um, and I almost similarly, I ran for journalism. I ran for the epicenter and for New York. Um, but my younger sister also to Glasgow. So we wanted, we wanted the pulse, but all of us have um, returned to uh, peace and solitude in homes where you can't see other lights. <laughs> yeah, it says a lot. Yeah. I think maybe come back to all that towards yeah, the end. Back but to it, yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. So I know you've described it in overview, but what was life like on that farm? Um, it was, um, it was, we, I had a really happy childhood. A lot of people will ask me close, I have a particular girlfriend that's often pushing me, saying, you know, why is it? Because I'm so restless. I'm, I'm, I travel hard and often and I never quite feel like I belong in a place. Um, she often says to me, like there's some darkness in my history that I'm running away from. And I can only counter with that with, no, I'm running towards it. It's a totally the opposite of why some people travel. I'm I'm completely pulled towards the kind of horizon and the thing I don't know, um, rather than um, in desperate need for um, stability. Um, and I think that that had a lot to do with a, the, the, the power of a stable childhood, to be honest. Um, stability encourages um, those things that are a little bit more dangerous, like creative life, exploration, however you want to express it, an imaginative life. Um, so I'm not running away from something by my constant restless need to travel. It's definitely running towards, and it comes from a, 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 the gift of a stable and loving home, um, to be honest. Yeah, I think you've you've got there. That was one of my much later questions, but... I think that's more prevalent than we realise in the game that we both play and in the world that we move in. Um, do you think 16-year-old Sophie lacked identity? Um, oh, for sure. Absolutely. 
Um, so did 20-something Sophie. So did 30-something Sophie more than anything. Um, but I'm now in my... I'm now 46, and I feel more more at ease with my restlessness um, and my identity with that um, personality trait, if you like, than I did when I was kind of trying to work out how I could do the things that mattered to me um, and be able to command them for myself rather than be commanded by others. Um, and that is a process of apprenticeship, of listening, of learning, of um, humility, of getting on that road. And that takes a lot of time because you have to you have to suppress your own ambition in that process, don't you? And you have to suppress your own impatience. Um, you, you've got to graft and you've got to keep your head down for quite a long time. Um, and at the same time, your own identity is kind of itching to fit its skin and it can't quite. Yeah. Oh, God, this is giving us some fodder for the clothes. <laughs> <laughs> or midnight drinking, or work out which. But... Um, what were the first steps towards finding that identity? What did you do? Um, I think, so I'm a writer by profession and I think um, the first steps to being a writer is by being a reader. And I was brought up in a world of books and I was, I, I've always found uh, reading an act of escape um, into a realm where I can't perhaps put my own feet. And that can be fiction, non-fiction, biography. Um, but that was something that until... My, my parents didn't travel or have the money to travel when we were kids. So we went to Ireland. Um, we used to take the ferry over f from Stranratalan. We spent time in Donegal. And um, I think when I was about 15 we went to France to see an uncle that lived in France. And that was the limit of my um, privileged upbringing, definitely privileged. But it wasn't anything more, and to use a dangerous word, but it speaks to the time, it wasn't any more exotic than that. It was, it was local and it was pretty simple. My father's a fisherman, you know, so we were always chasing rivers. We were always chasing uh, fish as far as... I can remember. <laughs> and the, the, I suppose um, reading was a, a huge form of, 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 it was really formative to me finding my, my desire to write and some of those early books really mattered. The other thing that contributed to it, of course, was th those from whom you learn, teachers, and in something like writing, that hits you really early if you're lucky, uh, if you're lucky. And I was lucky. I had good, um, I had good people that helped me kind of explore the world through pages of a book and get excited by the world through the pages of a book. And I think that in a way, it's not everyone has that instinct or desire. And I find that, you know, one of my children won't read. The other one does. And I find it... it it's disconnecting me I don't understand why he can't read but he has a different physical need to be in the space it's a physical desire to be in the space 
and mine is sometimes an intellectual and imaginative desire to be in the space. So, you know, people are different of how they engage and um, their restlessness. Yeah. As you and your sisters did, we interpret our childhoods differently, clearly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you say privilege. People associate privilege with finance or wealth. You don't mean financial privilege. No, no. I mean um, space and time. I was given space and time. I was given... Um, I, I never felt any sense of rush to my childhood. I never felt any sense of neglect in my childhood. My parents were incredibly present. Um, they are. When you brought up on a farm, they are because uh, animals plus children don't get fed unless somebody is present. So it's an incredibly you're you're on the you're on the you're on the land. You're in the ground. It's grounding, um, and you can't. Even if there was money, you can't take holidays because who's going to look after, you know, 20,000 fish and 300 head of sheep? And, you know, you can't. Um, So it was kind of grounding. And when you are, as a species, we have this thing called the imaginative psyche and the creative psyche. And that fills the space that... um, that physical movement or or wealth or privilege sometimes can't and it's a really neglected part of our lives I think in many ways and often like when I work a lot as a journalist in Africa and I see um, communities with 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 nothing but yet they um, the way they create footballs out of broken out of, out of plastic bags they spent six months gathering or the way I remember spending time off the east coast of um, of Kenya and there were children that were making boats that were made out of abandoned polystyrene that flew quicker across the water than anything that is sold at Toys R Us uh, you know you can make you can make your own entertainment. And we've sort of forgotten that. I remember being given my, my we had like these wooden bricks and I got bored of the wooden bricks because those are like a three-year-old's toy. They're not a 10-year-old's toy. So then my sister and I painted them and turned them into walkie-talkies. <laughs> my mother still has them. So they became like our walkie-talkies. So that was a whole new kind of um, uh, a game, a whole new thing. So, yeah, I mean, maybe it was boring. I don't know, but I was given space and time. Well, it seems like the, you made the best use of it. Yeah, it was fun. And my dad was really fun. I remember he used to tie a um, sledge on the back of his old landy, and he would, if there was the slightest show of snow, so not really when there was a surface to sledge on, just the slightest, like, dusting of white, he would tie it and and we that was that was like our ski holiday we would just get go and we we're really dangerous because we could just like fly under the wheels but we just like scoot around on this sledge on the hayfield it was good fun yeah it was good fun so to use the cliche like that's your roots mm-hmm. and then the whole roots and wings thing where did where did the wings come into it where did you go first i went to russia when i was about 17 on a school trip and it was perestroika and the whole system was falling apart and I remember going into that big superstore in Moscow that now sells kind of you know Gucci and Versace and all the rest 
and it had absolutely nothing on the shelves. It was like walking into a kind of grey soup of grey and and just there was just nothing it was kind of miserable and it was utterly compelling i found you know the faces the stories the the um the world that wasn't my own uh, a political system that had tried and failed that wasn't my own um i found it really really compelling so that sort of activated the journalistic side of things for me and then the travel side came a year or so later and my grandfather had left me some money, £3,000. And I went and I took off for a year to India, Nepal, you know, it's kind of classic stuff. Um, and it was, it was fantastic. And then, I got on, and then I got into the kind of, you know, the classic 18-year-old on the road. But it was a seminal experience for sure. I, you know, I, I, it's, a love for, it's a love of love for life. And, you know, at that age, you can only love it. I never did it. So what was it like? Oh, I mean, it's full of cliches. It kind of makes my skin crawl now when I think on it. But it was, um, you know, it was backpacking, uh, spending far too much time with other people that spoke English as opposed to getting into the seams of the the, the world as it should have been experienced in many ways. But it was fun. It was fun. And I've spent time in... I spent a lot of time up in the... Um, in the Himalayas, Ladakh, which was at that time, it had very little tourism. And then Kashmir, which was exciting to me because it was, um, look, Kashmir was having a, 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 it was having a really, really bad time. It was the sort of one of the real hot moments of its political crises. And Again, that was, I mentioned Kashmir because it was activating the kind of journalistic instinct in me rather than the cyberitic, which is the other side of travel. Um, so that's why when I think back on that year, half of me feels a little bit guilty that it was pure, pure pleasure. And then the other half I can see was talking to the kind of more the spirit of inquiry that is the journalistic side of my character. I've got, actually, my father said to me, he said, you write me a letter um, every week. It doesn't matter. Don't feel judged. Don't feel any any sense of not putting things in because it's what your mother and I don't want to hear. Just write, and it will be a record of that that experience. And I did. I wrote him a letter on that really thin airmail paper once a week and I sent it and he um, kept them typed them up and wrote me a letter every week from home and I've got them all in this room and those and it was a it was a really it was kind of like a ritualistic um, thing that I would go into these post offices in India and Nepal and there was a there was a system called the post restaurant I don't know if it even still exists and um, the post restaurant it was wonderful because it was all those old that old airmail paper you know it was like a sort of pale sky blue and it had the rim of um, of uh, red and white around the edges and you would turn up to the 
post office in I don't know Trivandrum or or um, Mumbai and you'd say, give your name at the post restaurant desk and the, the the they would go and flick through all these airmail from all over the world and then they'd hand you and you'd do an exchange of letters it's kind of cool <laughs> until so. until and this was amazing there was it was in um um, near Mahabalapuram, I remember this really well. And I went in and I did an ex- my. I went to get my letter from my father and said mine. And I was handed a letter and I opened it. It was to Sophie Roberts. And my name is spelled with a Y. And it was Sophie Roberts with a Y. But it wasn't my father's handwriting. I thought, oh, this is great. I've got a whole new, you know, <laughs> a whole new pen pal. And I left the post office and I opened the letter. And it was a letter written to another Sophie Roberts from her her mother in Wales um, about a jumble sale. And I rem- it was like being, it was so peculiar. One, because you realise, you know, um, you've got a complete namesake on the same road at the same time. And two, you realise how incredibly um, precious those um, those letter-based relationships are. And of course, now we've lost it. I've got friends with kids that are traveling the world and everything is on email. Everything is, those records between writers and readers have been lost. And to the future um, researchers, historians, uh, travelers that, that in the next 20, 30 years, the archives that they're going to work with are data protected. Um, they are, a comp- it's a complete loss to culture what has happened with um, the digitization of correspondence. Um, complete loss to culture, I think. And we haven't even seen, seen, uh, seen the, sharp, uh, the sharp edge of it yet. How's that going to get worse? Well, I just think that we, I don't know, um, but when I was working, I've written this book about Siberia. And one of the things that, things that I got most excited about were letters and diaries. So somebody, let's just take Chekhov, Anton Chekhov, who did a, made a remarkable trip across Siberia in the 1890s. And the letters that he sent to publisher, friends, family, are just a complete treasure trove of um, observations that are not the mannered observations of a writer in the fifth edit of a revise. They're the observations of a writer speaking from the heart in a letter to somebody he trusts. So, you know, his his description of a place I'm sure many of your listeners you know, will know about because it's a kind of adventurous um, holy grail is Lake Baikal. And he talks about... Um, Baikal as you know from Baikal onwards the poetry of Siberia begins before Baikal it's all prose and it's like little lines like that that are just written off the cuff um, that speak of somebody that's really kind of experiencing it um, uh, to a friend or a publisher I think that was to his publisher Um, and it matters enormously to the to the sort of wider um, texture and context of his relationship with that place Um, if we only had his great published um, tome on Siberia then that's a it's about a place called Sakhalin Island it's a really hardcore investigation of a penal exile system it's not the sense of him um, in a place do you see what I mean? And that's what we will lose is the intimacies that are shared in letters and diaries because email, it's deleted. It's 
never it never escapes its data protected vault it's a different thing so i think that when we research like i wonder let's take a great contemporary writer on place robert mcfarlane so he's giving us a huge body of published work a huge body of published work um i wonder um in a hundred years because he's a writer that will absolutely transcend his time he's a writer that will be read in 100 200 years i wonder what legacy he will leave biographers because did that intimate correspondence take place in letters and diaries or did it take place in a digital space that has gone forever and so if you could control what he did what would you have him do oh i don't believe in censorship it's just the way it is I mean, I don't believe in censorship or control. It's just the way it is, I think. Um, and it's... Uh, I was reading an, a Scottish poet this morning um, and, the you know, the control of a literary archive is um, a really significant control. Um, so that's always existed, um, of course, but at least they're controlling something that exists. On email, has it gone? You know, who controls that? Who's going to, I mean, I do 300 emails a day. Like, you know, who, who, you do 300 emails a day. So if somebody wants to write the biography of Matt Pycroft, they're not going to go through your 299 ones about um, how to get to my house in Dorset and, you know, the fact that the electricity bill's not being paid. They're not going to do it. (laughs) Too much correspondence, uh, not enough relevance is the problem with email. I've got both of those emails in my inbox. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, so what are you doing about it? You're a writer. You're a published author. What are you doing to leave your legacy of... Oh, mine is completely irrelevant. I'm a total, um, I'm a total also ran. Mine is completely irrelevant. I'm interested as a, as a writer of, um, who's, who's um, digging into the work of others. I'm interested. Again, it's the journalist in me. Um, so, like, for instance, at the moment, I'm working on some Dylan Thomas stuff, and it's just incredible to have access to his diaries and his letters and, and not just his published poetry, also his not-so-popular, uh, not-so-great-but totally fascinating um, short stories, and um, one that your listeners would love, Prologue to an Adventure. I mean, incredible piece of kind of apocalyptic writing. Um, there's it's stuff like that. I'm I'm interested in... Um, in looking into the motivations between why people um, um, uh, travel, why people um, explore either creatively or physically, uh, why people um, uh, say what they say. And often it's not just in that perfect finished finished piece. It's in the process of, of, of getting there. You know, the journey's in the, the, you know, the power is in the journey, not just the destination. It applies also to, um, to um, the way the artists work I think so to what extent are you interested in place versus interested in why Robert McFarlane is interested in place Mm, that's a very good question I am definitely interested in how people express uh, the sense of place I'm interested in words I'm really if you look pick up any of the books in the room you're talking to me now you'll see um, books just circled, words and phrases circled, 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 circled. So that's my drug is words. Um, and I, so I, it, it, it combines. I like, I like, um, 
it's a combination because I'm also a traveler, isn't it? I, there, was a, there was a book I was reading by a guy called Sylvain Tesson, who has written, I think, a fantastic, one of the best travel books of, of, of recent years called Constellations of the Forest. And that's about being in a, in a hut in, on the shores of Lake Baikal for six months or something. And he, he, he says something in that book, which I um, really treasure, because every time I've gone somewhere, so if I go to the Arctic, I want to take Lopez. If I go to, um, if I go to Papua New Guinea, I want to take Jay Griffiths Wild. you know? So I've always associated what I'm reading with the place I'm going. But Tesson says, no, 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 no. You read the opposite. You don't, you read Lermontov in Venice. You don't read Thomas Mann. And that to me is, uh, that was a real release because it's not about following in the footsteps of other writers, but it is taking inspiration from, from the power of words and the, 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 um, the unlikely couplings is when life gets interesting in writing. You know, so my book is The Lost Pianos of Siberia. The reason I found that an enigmatic starting point is because you don't expect a piano in a place like Siberia. So it's the coupling of the unlikely that makes a story, um, to me, um, have power. So, and it's why poetry is, is, is a really masterful art because poetry makes you look at familiar things as if it's completely new. That's what a really powerful poet can do. Um, but they do it through the unlikely coupling of images and the unlikely coupling of words. And in that space, something enigmatic evolves. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible. I never thought about it like that. <laughs> 
um, it opened me up to appreciate the power of um, of the power of a photographer's um, um, eye and respect for a photographer's eye, and that has become a really important part of my uh, later career and how I collaborate with photographers in the field. I totally couldn't do it without the way they look at the world not just in the way they the pictures they produce at the end of it but the energy that they bring to the field because you know they don't shoot straight on they shoot slightly to the left or to the slightly to the right and that questioning perspective is something that um that I can only benefit from so I did that um, and the way I paid for that was I freelanced for an American, well, a British writer who was based in America. And her name was Jessica Mitford. And she was one of the Mitford sisters, um, an extraordinary family. You know, one of them married the Duke of Devonshire and lived at Chatsworth. The other one was a fascist. The other one was um, a, um, a, a, a devout communist, who's the one I work for. And then there was, you know, Nancy Mitford was a great and brilliant novelist. There was, I mean, a fascinating family. And I worked for her for a year to pay for the journalism. And again, she activated this kind of, the sort of spirit of inquiry. She's a very, very funny woman. And we, she was doing a book. She wrote a bestseller in the 60s about the American way of death. So, you know, the funeral industry, very witty writer. And um, she was updating it. And I became her kind of um, scout on the way the American funeral industry was um, taking over the British, you know, effectively uh, local undertakers. Slightly odd, but I learned a lot from her. I've got all her letters here as well. We did everything by fax. I've got incredible collection of letters and faxes. Yeah, she was a very, very witty woman. Yeah. I mean, this is almost like terrible interview technique, but... It's so gripping. I just want to say, and then? <laughs> um, what did I do after that? Oh, then I went, yeah. No, then I was, um, I, I, I wrote a bunch of letters to try and get a job on a British newspaper. Um, and I got very divided opinion. I wanted, I, I kind of wanted to go into conflict journalism. I kind of wanted to feel the kind of pulse of the field, I suppose. And, um I got a letter from, um, I remember getting a letter from Deborah Orr, who said, um, go and work on a local newspaper and work your way through. And then I got some advice from a woman who worked for NPR, National Public Radio in America, and she was a correspondent in Russia. And she said, walk into the field and 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 learn it um and I did neither (laughs) I did neither I went to Columbia Journalism School in New York and it was incredible because I was taught by some of the best editors and journalists in media representer of the world and I learned that if you learn the rules in journalism it's a really powerful um industry because it's a meritocracy so learn the rules. It's a profession. It's a trade. Uh, and you can stand up and fight with the 62-year-old guy who's long in the tooth, who thinks they know it, and 
you you just got to learn those rules. You got to know them. And then I finished that and rapidly had to earn my way out of debt. So I took the first job that I got offered, which was <laughs> a completely left field, nothing to do with anything I had intended to do, which was at a very glamorous new launch in London called Condé Nast Traveller. And it was uh, difficult. It was difficult. I was, um, it was an incredible opportunity. It was the first travel title in the UK. And it was edited by an extremely talented woman um, who had come from the Telegraph and had hired a, a crew of senior journalists who were, who were absolutely excellent. And, but none of them had worked in travel. None of them worked in this thing called tourism. And so, and I was the tea maker, you know, I was the go, I was the sort of, you know, absolutely the bottom of the pile. Um, and one of the things you do in at the bottom of the pile is you, um, you respond to every single PR press release that comes through the door. So while we were, and the magazine was being launched, so while we had this completely blank slate, I was gathering this kind of contacts book which is a very important tool in a journalist's um, arsenal. And then I worked really hard. I did what I had to do. And then about two years, it was about 18 months in, I was in a private dining room in London on Berkeley Square with about 12 people talking about a smart hotel in, it was in the Caribbean. And I stopped breathing I totally stopped breathing. And then I, I, I was, I didn't know what was happening. They called an ambulance and I was taken out of the private dining room on the street in the back of an ambulance. Meanwhile, the PR launch went ahead downstairs, 11 people, not 12. And in the back of the, the ambulance, I was given a brown paper bag and it's very nice, you know, um, paramedic says you're having a panic attack (laughs) Uh, and just breathe in this brown paper bag and you know we'll talk once you've got your stop the hyperventilating and I went through that I called my father up as I walked home and he said right you've done your apprenticeship okay now now go fight and do it freelance and I was panic attacking because all the things that I'd wanted, which was um, travel and journalism and meaning, had been reduced to a private dining room about a five-star hotel in a basement of a posh London restaurant that they didn't give a shit. I was thinking I was dying. I was an asthmatic as a child, so I thought I was dying. And they went back down to continue their dinner. <laughs> So I then went in and I I went in on my two year anniversary to my editor, who I adore and is still a very dear friend of mine. And I handed in my notice and she said to me, she said, this is totally random. It's coming from nowhere. Um, You know, will you reconsider? And I said, it's not coming from nowhere yet. It's two years to the day. And I promised myself I'd do this two years. And then I went freelance. I'll never look back. Wow. How old were you? I don't know, maybe 25, I suppose. I don't know, 26. It's a huge, huge, you know, amount of bravery involved in doing that. Yeah, I mean, it was a um, yes and no. I mean, when you don't earn very much, you don't have very much to lose. (laughs) 
and it was you know I think my I think uh, I think um, risk is in my nature as well always I never really consider the um, I never think through things in the long term about, I never really think about sort of the long term security of something. I tend to respond more instinctually and I'm an optimist. I think things will always be all right. They can't, you know, things will always be all right. Are they? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, sometimes we've got it wrong. Of course I have. Um, but I gen, I think to do what I do, um, you have to believe in the good in people before you believe in the bad. I think you have to trust people before you um, assume they're out to hurt you. Um, only then can you both... You can, it's only then that you'll break a stereotype um, and only then that you find this kind of closer connections and six degrees of separation um, that I think divide us. It's pretty close. I mean, it's something that I'm, 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 the serendipity has been a very, very powerful force in my life. But it's serendipity that I have embraced. So, for instance, when you turned up today, you met a young woman that works with me, a brilliantly talented writer who I'm sure everyone's going to hear a lot more of in the years to come. And I was on a train about four years ago coming down from London to Dorset. And she was talking to her brother and her brother was saying, you know, she was a recent graduate. Her brother was saying, you got to just get a job. You just got to get a job. Do law. Just do law. You know, dad wants you to do law. You've got the grades. Do law. And she was like, I don't want to do law. I want to work in Africa. I want to write. I want to travel. And she had on her, um, on the, you know, the train table between them, a book that um, my publisher told me to read called Prisoners of Geography. So I'd noticed that. And then I just listened to the conversation for three hours while she argued why she had to travel and had to had to write. And as I got off the train, I said to her, look, I'm really sorry, I couldn't but help overhear your conversation. I said, look, this is my email. Just have a Google if you're interested in what I do. Um, call me. I didn't even have a job going at all. I just liked her. And then I came into my office the next day and I said to another of my colleagues here who was doing some research on my book, I said, look, I listened to this girl on the train yesterday and there was something about her. I said, but she's got to give a shit. She's got to give a shit. So let's see if she calls by 10, um, um, let's meet her. She called at 9.30 and I gave her a job at 10.05 she's brilliant and she was everything you know she was a she studied um stalinist history she was a musician a pianist um and she's been with me ever since um so serendipity can be a powerful thing um the other day i was i go swimming where i live i live down um close to the sea in west dorset and during um the sort of as we're coming out of these kind of strange lockdown times i was swimming every day that was where i find my kind of escape from you know speed and all the rest of it is just kind of being in that water and um 
I go down with a girlfriend, we meet down there and we do a swim at seven in the morning. And um, there's no one there. A couple of fishermen who'd done the overnight camp with the long lines, you know. Um, and at that time, even though this is a popular tourist area, there's no one else. And I, I push out. She almost swims to France. She's a really, really powerful swimmer. So off she goes, boom. And I sort of, you know, sort of do a kind of a pathetic sort of little bit of breaststroke with my head above the water because I don't want to get my hair wet because that's a hassle and I'll be like, you know, two hours trying to get the knots out of my mess. Um, but anyway, there's this other guy that I start to notice in the water. He's he's older. Um, he wears a kind of thin wetsuit. And I say hello to him one on uh, after I'd noticed him a couple of times. And he had an American accent. And I start talking to him. And um, so we're both, can you imagine, treading water in the English Channel, nobody else around. And this man turns out to be one of the most extraordinary human beings who wrote a book called The Examined Life. If anyone listening to this, just go read it if you haven't. A total worldwide bestseller. And he he's, um, I think, Chicago-born, and he's a, um, he's a, a psychiatrist psychotherapist one of the forgive me for the nuance of the difference but the um and um my friend swims back from france or wherever she'd been for the last time and she goes i just can't believe you you're sitting here now in a book club in the sea <laughs> and it was and, it, and then i'd go back and like you know other days and we'd talk some more absolutely fascinating man and a gifted gifted writer and that to me again it's like it's the it's as long as you're open to a conversation kind of little miracles can happen and i that's the optimist to go back to the original point that's the optimist in me i i usually um almost invariably find that people are 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 um, people are good people are good people are interesting everyone has a story to tell whether they've written the book like the gentleman in the sea the author of the examined life or not they've still got a story to tell and that is the thing that draws me out um, and it draws me away and it takes me into the thing I love which is journalism why do you think that is I don't know maybe being brought up in a primary school that had three kids I don't know don't know. Does it matter to you why that is, or do you just not latch really? It? Not really. I don't sort of. Maybe I should. Maybe I should examine my life. <laughs> um, no, I think it's my character. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I think people are interesting. And one of the problems I had, in fact, when I was at Condé Nast, one of the reasons I was unhappy there um, was that I think that people are more interesting than places and tourism tends to make places more interesting than people the industry of tourism the industry of travel has um has or until covid had become more powerful than the people to whom that place means something and i prefer the people stories people make sense of a place to me that makes sense very much so <laughs> yeah no oh, I love the sentiment I mean I run the podcast so you know you're <laughs> preaching to the converted yeah yeah well you're an extrovert and I am an extrovert I'm an extrovert who loves 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 going into a really private space so you know I'm an extrovert that can easily spend five days totally alone and not for a second worry you know lockdown was a very natural space for me to be in it's um it was an excuse not to do the things I didn't want to do which is get out 
forgive me for asking it in this way, mm. I mean this positively, but how much of it is a self-indulgence versus archiving stories and creating legacies so that other people can hear these stories? Oh, I think, um, I think um, it's a really good question. I write to be read. I write to be read. And that's where I'm different from true artists who write to express something that, that beats at the bottom of their heart. You know, if you read, if you read, I've always written to be read. And that's where journalism is a profession. And then writing a book. Um, yeah, I write to be read. I, I don't, I don't, I don't, um, I don't sweat and bleed blood because I am, for any other reason, I want to be read. Uh. Are you just being self-deprecating? No, I've got, no, not at all. No, it's the commercial, very opposite, greedy. I want to be read. No, I think... Um, you, if you wanted to be read, you'd just stay at Condé Nast. No, you wouldn't. That's, that's glossy. I don't get read in Condé Nast. I never got read in Condé Nast. I was describing, I was describing posh hotel rooms. It's not being read. We won't go down the route because it'll take ages, but if you just wanted to I be mean, read... I mean, lots of people are read in Condé Nast, better writers than I, but the um, I wasn't read at that time in Condé Nast, no. No, I was describing pillow menus and, you know, I don't know, infinity pools. So just to give the context briefly, what did you do there and for how long? I, um, I did two years to the day and... I went to a lot of PR launches and I went to a lot of press lunches and I wrote the the pages about, you know, I mean, it, what's hot? I mean, you know, these are like forbidden words now because what's hot is basically what we've, the next thing we're going to destroy. But um, at the time, that was the language, you know, see it before you die. You did write freelance after, no? Or have I got that wrong? No, after Condé Nast, I went freelance. Yeah, I've worked, I still work for them. I still work for them. I still yeah. write features for them, absolutely. Um, and again, it's still got, it's got a brilliant editor um, here in the UK and America. And um, yeah, I get to publish stories I, I, uh, that, that I love. Um, but it was a different phase of my life. I mean, you know, I had a particular editor there who was just incredible because after, um, it was probably about, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I made a decision that I wanted to write. I've always been attracted to the underdog, always, um, the kind of anti-hero. So in my book, it's not the virtuoso pianist, it's the piano tuner who comes onto the stage at the interval, no one knows their name. Um, that's the, those are the sort of, those are the hero characters, whether it's um, fiction or life that I'm drawn towards. And um, so when I was watching the industry of travel um, become increasingly polarized between the sort of, um, uh, you know, posh hotel, boutique, I mean, all these phrases that are in my history, you know, that, and, the, um, and the sort of forbidden lands, if you want to call them, um, I decided that I wanted to write about all the places that nobody else wanted to go to. Um, one, because it made commercial sense, because I was no longer competing with the same crowd of writers. And two, because I really have all, will always believe that um, there isn't one story. The stereotypes um, need to be 
readjusted by an inquisitive eye and a and a kind of curious pen and so and I had a particular editor on an American Condé Nast who you know when Trump gives his travel ban on seven countries that becomes my assignment list and that was very powerful to see things in their mirror image is uh, kind of quite a, a a strong place for a writer to 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 try and find their feet um, and I say often to young writers that I mentor, it's like, you know, it's where, where, where somebody else has seen this, flick that into the mirror and see where the opportunity might lie. Um, so see things to the opposite. So what were those stories? Um, well, I always did things like, I mean, uh, you know, Chad, for instance, somewhere I've been back a few times. Um, Chad is, for many reasons and rightly, um, Chad is a no-go zone. Um, but there are other incredible um, things that are worth getting on a plane for there. And the first time I went down was to a place called Zakuma, which is a park in the south, where I'd been told about some an elephant conservationist who had done incredible work um, to protect these elephants that had become so habitually terrorized by the poachers coming in from the Sudan and all the rest of it that their the the mothers of the herd would whenever you approached them they would go into like a whirlpool and the mothers would spin round and round on the outside and the bull elephants on the outside spinning 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 to dislodge the eye of the hunter um, and in the center of that whirlpool was the baby's and that was their protection. I mean, desperate. So if you're throwing spears, um, they have a chance. If you've got AK-47s, they don't. And so how do you turn that absolute crisis around? And bearing in mind, Chad is surrounded by all the bad boys, all the bad boys, you know, CAR, Central African Republic, um, uh, Sudan, um, um, uh, Niger. I mean, you know, you just, just name it. And the um, and this guy had come in and he had completely empowered um, the um, the whole poaching agenda, anti-poaching agenda there, including I mean it's just some incredibly moving stories. The 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 guys that do the anti-poaching, Chadians, Muslim, uh, praying, um, shot in the back by poachers, shot in the back, and this guy. Um, got the anti-poaching back in control um, with people that have been truly traumatised and elephants that have been truly traumatised. And what I saw was the most incredible turnaround. And it was full of the optimism that I'm drawn towards. Um, and it was evidence of how we can through a few exceptional people like this guy, he was called Rian Labashagni, a few exceptional people um, can switch up the narrative, turn the dial. And then coming back from there, this is another example where serendipity can be a really powerful thing. I was sitting in a bar in N'Djamena, the capital, and there was this, I got talking with the guy's an Italian. Um, oh my God, you have to do a podcast on him. He is incredible. Italian guy, he was born in 73, I think, exactly the same year as me, and he's called Rocco Rava, and he was the son of a very important Italian alpinist. And Rocco, when he was a child, he was um, in Kenya. His father was a doctor, 
and his mama, they decided to drive overland from Nairobi back to Italy, to the Dolomites, Milan, um, where they needed to get on with the life now there was a kid. And uh, on the way up, they kind of got waylaid in the Sahara. They kind of fell in love with the Sahara. And Rocco was brought up pretty much hanging from a camel's neck in a sort of, you know, a Tuareg swing of cloth. And Rocco's story is unbelievable. Brilliant climber, absolutely brilliant climber as his father. They've taken sort of anybody that's climbed in the Anedi Desert or Tabesti or around there has gone with the Ravas. And um, Rocco, yeah, I met at a bar. And, I, and then I managed to get, um, I wanted to keep on talking. I wanted to keep on talking. I just knew this guy had a story to tell. So I managed to get Mr. Porter to fly him into London for a photo shoot <laughs> for an old column I used to do called Wild Men. And they, they dressed him up in fancy clothes and I got to talk to him some more. And then the last assignment I did before lockdown, I went to the Anedi Desert um, in northern Chad to work with him in basically what became his adopted homeland. And this is in uh, one of the most beautiful places on the planet, in my opinion. Uh, rock arches that just, you know, take your breath away. Um, it, it's where the Sahara was once green. Um, so you have evidence of, of uh, you know, millennia of human habitation. You have pictures carved onto the wall of rhino, you know, and you see that rhino, did they really roam in the Sahara? What have we lost? Um, he's just an amazing guy. Um, and he is also, there's a very, very interesting story, and I'm going to leave you to extract it from him on a podcast about um, a kidnapping in Tibesti, up in this region of Chad with a bunch of climbers and the way that he um, dealt with that situation. I mean, he's kind of, he's special, really special. I've made the notes and Marco, I accept your rather, challenge. Yeah, he's properly good. I'll introduce you. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit theadventurepodcast.co.uk and be sure to check in for the second half of Sophie's story in episode 51. The podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced and distributed by Pip Saunders and Alex Hall. The podcast is also closely linked with Sidetrack magazine. So if you enjoy these stories and feel like you need more, then head to sidetracked.com. And finally, this is my plea to leave us a review on iTunes and tell all your friends and help spread the word. See you next time.